Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 219 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Michael R. Page. He's a lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Nebraska and author of the book The Literary Imagination from Erasmus Darwin to H.G. Wells, Science, Evolution, and Ecology. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Frederick Pohl, the latest volume in the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series from the University of Illinois Press. And now, here's our interview with Michael R. Page. All right, so we're here with Michael R. Page. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, and so this book has a blurb from David Brin that says, Frederick Pohl did more than any other human to transform the very character of science fiction literature. Do you agree with that? Um, I think, in a sense, uh, Fred Pohl was was one of the most significant uh, figures in the field, not just for his writing, his fiction work, but uh, what he did as an agent in the late 40s and the early 1950s to really kind of get the field uh established, if you will, outside of just the pulp marketplace. And um, and certainly as an editor uh, throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he played signif- a significant role. Um, he was the editor of Galaxy and If during the 1960s when that, that those magazines were the leading uh, magazines in the field. Uh, he had started the Star Science Fiction Anthology st- series in the 1950s with the Ballantine Books. And that was the first um, uh, original anthology series that uh, uh, that got that sort of avenue for publishing underway. In the 70s, he published Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren, uh, among other things, and, and Joanna Russ's uh, The Female Man as when he was editor of ba- uh, Bantam Books. Yeah, you actually say in the book that uh, Dahlgren was called Fred's Folly around the office? Yeah, evidently in the, in the Bantam offices when... Delaney's book came in, it was like two manuscript boxes of about 1,600 or 1,800 pages. And they said, oh, nobody, nobody will ever read that. And then it, it turned out to be a, a multiple bestseller in a, as a paperback. I think they, they sold a million copies in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It was quite successful. An- another thing that, that Fred Pohl was really important uh, with was his, uh, as an early fan, um, and in fact, he and his friends in the Futurians, in a lot of ways, created fandom as we know it today. And uh, so I was just at the WorldCon in uh, Kansas City, and you can kind of see, you know, Fred Pohl's uh, marks on that on that tradition, even though he's still not uh, or he's still not with us. Um, so he, he was multifaceted uh, in the field. Yeah, I was just even going through your book, trying to keep a list of all the important contributions he made and firsts that he was involved with. And it's a list I can't even read it all. It's so long. But just to give a couple other things, you say that he negotiated the first real book contracts for science fiction writers, including Isaac Asimov and Jack Williamson's first novels. And he also wrote the first memoir by a science fiction author. Mm, uh did I say his was the first? You said it was arguably the first. You said uh, oh, as the yeah, there was there were several right around that time in the in the mid nineteen seventies. Um, I think yeah, uh, the way the future was predates Asimov's uh, biographies or autobiographies, which are huge. Um, I think Del Rey's uh, World of Science Fiction might have been right around the same time as Fred Pohl's. Um, 
But certainly that was one of those um, landmarks in, in a lot of ways because uh, he was uh, sort of, you know, giving that um, that personal history of those important early days of the field in the, in the 30s and 40s when he was a young youngster in the Futurians. Um, I guess one precursor to that would be the uh, book by uh, Brian Aldiss and Harry Harrison called Hell's Cartographers, which had, they weren't book length memoirs, but uh, they had uh, f- about five memoirs, uh, about, you know, 30 uh, page memoirs from various writers, including Pohl. So the, the piece in Hell's Cartographers, which I think was dated 1973, um, was kind of a precursor to his his memoir, The Way the Future Was. Yeah. Also, he also published the first stories from Larry Niven and Gene Wolfe. Um, yeah, some of these some of these stories were published when Fred Pohl was the editor of, of Galaxy and If in the 1960s, as those writers were coming up. Um, well, also might note, uh, I think I mentioned that he published Bradbury's first story uh, when he was an editor of Astonishing Stories and Super Science Stories in 1940 and 41. Um, Fred Pohl was all of 19 or 20 years old when he first became an editor. And so that's that's an interesting um, beginning point, I think, for 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 his career as well. Yes, like we're saying, I mean, he did all these things in science fiction. And you say that a lot of people kind of drift away from science fiction in their late teens and early 20s and then come back to it later. But he was just 100 percent into science fiction from the age of about eight to when to 93. Um, Why do you think it was that he was just so passionately committed to science fiction throughout his whole life? Well, I think uh, I think he found his uh, he found his his calling, if you will. and he described that in the, the way the future was, uh, as you know, this was uh, a lot of people in the science fiction world. I think recognize once they have that experience and say, "Hey, this is my tribe. These are my people. This is what I want to do." Yeah, I mean, I really liked this quote. You say that, or uh, you know, Frederick Pohl says that science fiction is a way of writing stories. It's and it's a way to look at the human race and all its affairs from outside. And that, you know, most fiction deals with stories from a human perspective and science fiction tries at least to get outside that and look at humans from some, from some other perspective. Uh, yeah, in some ways, I think that that idea of Pulse uh, extends from uh, a story like H.G. Uh, Wells' The Star, which um, is one is a great example of a story that takes us sort of outside of that human condition and look at this uh, event. It's, it's sort of a, a global catastrophe event that if I recall from Wells's story in some ways uh, is averted or at least, uh, uh, or at least it, it leads to change, et cetera. But, but Wells's story very much gets on in that sort of outside and, and isn't from a human point of view, if you will, in some ways it's, it's almost a view from above. And uh, I think that that's one thing that science fiction can do is sort of take us out of that um, out of that sort of individual lens, if you will, and, and give us that that sort of larger scale galactic lens, depending on the story. And um, and I think that's kind of what Paul was getting at there. It gives us an opportunity to look at things differently. Yeah. Well, say a little bit about his personality, because I, I gather he had a really forceful personality. Well, that's what I, 
personally, I, I met him at the very end of his life. I had met him a couple of times uh, prior to that. And, um, but it, I was the interview I did at the end of the book, that was about six weeks before he died. Uh, and I interviewed him at his home. But uh, from what I gather, uh, not knowing him personally in that sense, that, yeah, he, he was very much a, an, an alpha personality, if you will. Um, I think his wife, uh, uh, his widow, Betty Hall, has told me that, uh, that when he worked with Arthur C. Clarke on Clarke's last novel, The Last Theorem, yeah, and they worked from, from uh, basically the Internet, but nevertheless, it was, it was a competition between two alpha, <laughs> alpha males, as she said. Uh, but yeah, I think that that personality probably made uh, made it where he could get those book deals in the late 40s, early 50s as an agent and could uh, make those strides, not just for himself, but for the field as a whole. Well, I mean, one of my favorite stories about Paul as an editor is the story where he sends Hal Clement's Mission of Gravity to John W. Campbell. Do you know this story? Uh, no, I didn't come come across that. That's right. Uh, uh, Clement was one of his clients too. I haven't heard this one. Oh, so okay. So, um, so, so Paul sends Mission of Gravity to Campbell, and Campbell says, "This is a great story, but I can't publish it because there's no good way to break it into pieces, you know, to to be serialized." Oh yeah. Okay. Now I remember. <laughs> and, and didn't he just uh, he took the manuscript and he and he made uh, divisions and put chapter uh, took put part one, part two, part three, and sent it right back to him. Yeah, he just arbitrarily divided it at page 100 and page 200 and sent it back and said, how about and now? Campbell <laughs> said that's, and Campbell said, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think there were a few other instances that I've, I've heard of like that where like in Campbell might or, or even Horace Gold would reject a story and Paul would maybe type the first couple pages again to give him a sense that they're seeing a revision. And without the actual revision, and then they read it again, and then they buy it. Yeah. So he he would he would pull that uh, on him occasionally. <laughs> I also just really love this story from when he was an editor, and he sort of makes this deal with Robert Silverberg that he'll publish anything that he sends him. Right. I I, I was just uh, at Worldcon uh, with and did a panel with uh, Mr. Silverberg, and he he talked about that a little bit. Um. Basically, they he had Silverberg had published quite frequently in in Campbell's Astounding in the fifties and in a number of other magazines, not just under his own name but as a pseudonym. But in the early sixties, he had kind of moved away from science fiction. He was writing uh, primarily uh, nonfiction, uh, popularized nonfiction books for the library market, and he was doing quite well with that. And Paul wanted him to get back into science fiction, as it were. Uh, and they made an arrangement by which uh, Silverberg would would write stories um, for Paul, and he'd spend more time on them than he had in the past. But the arrangement was such a way that if if Paul rejected one, um, Silverberg could they could end the either one of them could end the arrangement at any any time. Well, but I think what it was was that um, Paul said, "I'll pub anything you send me. I'll publish it, and you know, just give me your assurance that it's the best that you can do." Right. But if right. I decide, you know, and I'll, I'll send you a contract, I won't even read it. But if I look at it later after I've published it, and I think it wasn't the best that you could do, then that's the end of this deal. Yeah, and I don't think they ever broke that deal. I think it continued throughout the uh, late '60s when Paul stopped being the editor at Galaxy. 
But a, a lot of Silverberg's um, later novels, or not later novels, but his late 60s novels, uh, were uh, serialized in Galaxy. So I, I take it the relationship lasted throughout the decade. Yeah, and it's just so psychologically astute, that sort of deal as an editor. I've never heard of anyone else, you know, any, anyone before that doing anything like that. But of course, it was Robert Silverberg. So <laughs> he knew he was going to get good product. Yeah. Okay. And so then one of the early Frederick Pohl novels that really made a huge splash that he wrote with Cyril Kornbluth was The Space Merchants. And there's a really interesting story about how he came up with that story. So tell us about that. Well, um, the way The Space Merchants sort of developed was that when Pohl was in uh, Italy during World War II, he had started a novel that I guess it was a mainstream fiction novel about the advertising industry. And um, he then sort of realized he didn't actually know anything about the advertising industry um, other than what he had read in, in other, in other stories, but he had started to do um, some of the uh, things that, that helped him as an agent. And when he got back from the war, he started working in, in the publishing industry and the advertising uh, business at, uh, with a, uh, I think it was uh, Time Life Books, and uh, or or was it another? Uh, no, it was with Field and Stream, and um, he worked uh, with the book club advertising, and so he kind of got to know how how the advertising business worked, and he put that together with his uh, his thoughts about the uh, novel. Um, but then he's a science fiction guy, so as as time went forward, he realized, well, you know, I ought to sort of project this into the future. What will the future be like when advertising uh, becomes more uh, ubiquitous in our day-to-day life? And in a lot of ways, I teach that book to my students uh, now, and it's amazing how much they can relate to the fabulation of the story. They can say, hey, that's kind of like it is now, or this is the way it could be in the future. Because I, because they're so sort of locked into this uh, uh, commercial world that we live in. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting too that he would take a job in that field and work in that field for years as preparation for writing a novel. That's pretty hardcore. Well, in some way, I think he, he that's the way he sort of phrases it. Um, I think in in some respects, it was actually um, some of the advertising he was involved with was uh, part of the publishing industry advertising. So I think that was another link with with uh, uh, writing and uh, the the agency work he did. Um, but yeah, I think in some respects he wanted to learn about uh, this the business side of what he was he was trying to write about. So I, I think in some ways it's just a, a way to gather life experiences. Yeah, and he didn't like the advertising industry or the effects of it much. You have this quote from him where he says. Uh, that if you don't develop a certain contempt for your fellow human beings, you're not paying attention to what the advertising industry is doing. Yeah, exactly. I think that really plays into his, uh, the satire of the space merchants. Um, clearly the, the, the space merchants is a dystopia. It's not a world we want to live in. And, um, you can see that, uh, contempt in, in the novel, which, as as you point out, it comes from that uh, personal <laughs> contempt he he developed for for the business he was in uh, for for a period of time at least. Um, but yeah, that's a great quote. I love it. 
And it's kind of interesting how Cyril Cornbluth got involved because apparently Horace Gold told Frederick Pohl, I want to publish this as a serial right after Alfred Bester's serial finishes up. Right, and, right. And Pohl said, well, I'm not finished with it yet. And Gold says, well, you better start writing faster then. Yeah, yeah well, what, what, had, what had happened at that point, I believe I, I mentioned this, is that Cornbluth had been uh, doing uh, collaborations with uh, Judith Merrill, who was Pohl's wife at the time. And uh, they had done two novels together, uh, what uh, Outpost Mars, which was serialized in Galaxy, I think, the year before in 1951. And they were just completing their second collaboration called Gunner Cade, which was to, uh, I believe it appeared in Astounding uh, with Campbell in 1952. And so um, Bluth was, you know, he was a friend of Pulse from the Futurian days for sure, but he was at their house uh, in Red Bank, New Jersey, um, sort of putting the finishing touches on Gunner Cade with Merrill. And uh, that's how they sort of got together on the collaboration and, and, and you're right to gold um, sort of said, I need this next month or, or I need this in a couple months. And so he was, he was under a deadline. And I mean, Cornbluth was really a character. I gather when I interviewed Alan Steele a while back and he said, he told, he told the story that Cornbluth used to punch people in the stomach when he first met them so that they would remember meeting him. Well, oh, that's, yeah, I think that was in the Futurian days when Cornbluth was probably about 15 years old. I can't imagine he actually did that uh, when they were in their late twenties and thirties, but yeah, that's a story. I think that's uh, re- it's related either in the Futurians by Damon Knight or it's in uh, Holes, Way the Future Was. I, I think it might be in Knight's book, but but he certainly he he was certainly, from what I understand, could be an irascible uh, temperament. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about like the contempt, I, I think my my impression is that Cornbluth had that sort of contempt for other people too. He has this story of the marching morons. Oh yeah, hmm. yeah. To to this, some of the some of the more um, sort of uh, oh, I wouldn't call them vicious scenes, but some of the more um, sort of more mean spirited scenes from their novels uh, might be from Cornbluth's imagination as much as Paul's. Um, yeah, they, they, they shared that, uh, satiric, uh, vein to them and, and biting satire. Va- Kurt Vonnegut was so, sort of like that too, in, in a different register, but it was certainly there. Yeah. Well, you talked to in your book about how the space merchants was really revolutionary because of the way that it put exposition into the story in this really low key way, but it, it built up a picture of a world without explaining things so you give the example the the main character is really wealthy and so he has genuine tree-grown wood in his apartment yeah right those those little details in the first couple of pages sort of established that we're not that we're in it we're in a we're in an alternative uh, future if you will that uh, or or a future that's um environmentally degraded um and just by and those details are just sort of Placed there from the viewpoint of our our main character Mitch Courtney, with uh, you know, and just sort of creates the world for us um, because for him the world is, that's normal, but uh, us as readers we experience that as hey that's that's off off the main line of our experience, and um, I think yes, there's the tree grown wood, there's the um, 
the water from the freshwater tap, um, which would indicate, well, as I tell students, I say, you know, we don't call a water tap a freshwater tap. We call it a water tap. But if you have a freshwater tap, that indicates that there's there's problems with uh, with water uh, resources. Yeah, yeah. I also really liked the kitty butt cigarette ration that all the kids get. Yeah, um, and, and of course now we kind of live in an era where cigarettes and smoking are, are are less prevalent than they certainly were in the '50s, and certainly were uh, at, when I grew up in the '70s and '80s, and um, and that just uh, that 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 cigarette advertising that existed in that period is just astonishing. Um, I recall looking at an old Collier's magazine uh, from the 50s uh, that I dug out of the library at one point, and it had this extraordinary ad with a small, uh, smiling baby kind of waving its hand and saying, my mommy smokes camels, and just these sorts of things that we would find absolutely bizarre, that you would have an advertisement with a baby. The baby's happy because mother is smoking camels. And they're recommended by eight out of 10 physicians. <laughs> but I feel like that that was sort of prescient in a way, not with cigarettes, but I feel like in schools you have the, you know, fast food and the Coke and stuff and all the schools right, to get the exactly. kids hooked on it. Sort of the, the marketing of, of products. For, yeah. See, that's, that's, that's sort of out of my uh, experience in some ways, too, in, in the sense of when I grew up, we didn't have commercial products in school for, for, for lunch, you know, lunch was made by a uh, cafeteria, uh, uh, staff. And it's just extraordinary to me when I've been in schools in more recent years and they have like pizza vendors that have a, a kiosk and, and they have ice cream, uh, bar machines in every hallway. Um, and yeah, so they really kind of anticipated that sort of, uh, marketing for kids. Uh, early on, because I don't think it existed quite the way, uh, quite in quite that way in the 1950s. Yeah. Well, I mean, you give a lot of examples of things that Paul anticipated that later came true. I mean, there's this, I have a whole list. Here. I'll just read some of these quickly. The housing bubble, Occupy Wall Street, climate change denial, online college courses, the rise of religious fundamentalism in U.S. politics, and even smartphones. I mean, that's a pretty good list for a, <laughs> for a science fiction writer. Well, if it, yeah, the, the, um, the online classes is really interesting in the novel uh, Drunkard's Walk from 1960. Um, and just the idea that, that an academic or a teacher might um, become kind of a, a star, if you will, um, and, and in some ways um, how universities then might compete for, um, you know, sort of online uh, teaching stars that don't actually teach in front of a class, but they teach in front of a camera. And then the class is sort of distributed across the country. Um, now what's interesting, what's weird about that novel is that it becomes kind of a, uh, immortality psi power type of novel and moves away from that idea a little bit. Uh, but it's certainly in the first 30 pages or so, it's, it's a really fascinating, uh, glimpse of, uh, future education. And let's see, some of the other ones, the housing bubble, probably, I, I believe that's uh, Gladiator Law's yeah. second novel that he uh, c collaborated with uh, Cornbluth on. And uh, it, 
to use that term housing bubble is really interesting in terms of that novel because uh, in that uh, they they actually create kind of dome bubble housing. Um, so a little uh, pun there, hmm. but uh, yeah, uh, that that novel also I think has, says some things about um, sort of how urban uh, urban areas uh, declined in the fifties and sixties, seventies. And uh, now we, of course, sort of live in a period of uh, sort of uh, regentrifying the urban space and making that uh, um, sort of revitalizing the, the, the inner cities. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to draw special attention to the smartphones, too, because people often knock science fiction writers for not having foreseen the Internet and all this kind of stuff. But uh, in his story, the age or this novel, The Age of the Pussyfoot. Pussyfoot, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I think in uh, in a lot of stories, we if if we look back at them, at, we can notice that some of these uh, information and media technologies that we now have are in some ways present in some of those uh, in a lot of the early stories, but they just didn't have a name for it or they didn't uh, have it fully conceptualized. Um, and certainly in the case of uh, the age of the pussyfoot, he it's it's actually not like a a, a phone uh, like we would think of it as a little you know pocket uh, device. It was actually like a scepter, um, but it it had all these uh, sort of capabilities that we now would associate with a smartphone, um, and uh, just the the fact that you'd have your sort of personal um, uh, computer device that you could carry around from place to place. So in, in, in that respect, you sort of anticipated uh, wireless uh, uh, receivers too, in, in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I think Brent, David Brin uh, points to that novel and, and makes that point about anticipating uh, those technologies. But, but again, I, I think it's there, or at least it's it, one, one thing I like to say about the science fiction from the thirties, forties and fifties is even if they don't have the technologies quite right, they kind of create worlds that resonate with the world that we have, uh, with the technologies that we do have. Yeah, yeah. Well, another story here I have here is the Tunnel Under the World. I actually read this in a high school science fiction class, and I've never oh, that's forgotten a wonderful it. story. Such a good story, yeah. But um, you make the interesting point that I never really thought about before that the idea of minds uploading and the the rapture of the nerds and all this, you know, we'll all live in the cloud kind of stuff we think of as being, I guess, maybe coming along with cyberpunk, I think is how most people would think about it. But you point out that Tunnel Under the World actually kind of has the idea of uploading yeah, your consciousness. Kind of it kind of anticipates uh, those those things, and of course, the story is also uh, one of these advertising satire stories. Um, so, whereas uh, you know, maybe the uploaded consciousness, and, and even in some of uh, Pole's later works, such as uh, the Hichi Rendezvous, etc., um, that he's interested in in uh, uploading consciousness. But in in Tunnel Under the World, it's it's not a happy. <laughs> ending so to speak it's not he's not joyful about the fact that he's been uploaded in fact characters if, if, in some respect has been uploaded just to become a uh test subject for advertising and it's and, and he's sort of in a nightmare and he also discovers that he not only is he not uh human anymore he's been uploaded into sort of a robot mechanism uh, but that robot is only the size of like a 
uh, you know, a doll or a, um, and is on a, actually on a tabletop, which, uh, if I recall, that really gives us that changing perspective that we talked about a little uh, earlier um, in relationship to uh, that sort of taking another viewpoint. Yeah, I just I just love the end of that story. And I was just thinking about this because there's this whole um, you know set of stories in science fiction about people being shrunk down, like Richard Matheson's The Shrinking Man or something like exactly that. Exactly right. But they all really strain scientific plausibility. But the idea that you might be transferred into a robot body and then discover that that robot body is tiny yeah. is is really you know quite plausible. I think there were a lot of stories in the early days of the magazines that involved. Uh, people getting shrunk down and actually going into sort of worlds that were atom-sized, um, such as uh, Ray Cummings as the girl in the golden atom. And so those would have been stories that, that Paul would have read as a youngster. And so that gives me a new thing to think about. Maybe in some ways Tunnel Under the World is a, is a, is a new angle on that, uh, on that shrinking of the human. Yeah, yeah. But of course, as you know, the incredible shrinking man, if if if, if it uh, defies plausibility, is still a fun story. Oh, it's a great, yeah, it's a yeah, great, great it. novel. And I love the ending of that because it gets really metaphysical about, you know, he's go he's going to shrink into uh, the size of an atom or something. He says, well, maybe that's a new world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has a happy ending, so spoiler warning, but yeah. Um, Excellent story. See the movie with the giant spider, which isn't actually <laughs> giant spider. The man is shrunk. <laughs> um but so yeah so so paul he's publishing all these great things we mentioned like the space merchants and so on and so he becomes actually you say a bit of a celebrity you say that after the the moon landing science fiction writers were in high demand for a yeah commentary. some of uh you know we pr not maybe to the level of, of an arthur c Clarke or a robert heinlein or, or an isaac asimov or even a, maybe a little bit later harlan ellison in the 70s but uh, evidently, Paul was became uh, active in, in a late night radio show that came out of New York City by, I think his name was Long John Nebel, and uh, that, to me that's really interesting. I'd, I'd love to like find um, sort of archival recordings of that um, if they exist. Uh, but but frequently, evidently, he was a regular guest and and would participate in in those uh, late night talk shows. Uh, I did never found. I mean, well, there might be one floating uh, around on YouTube where Paul was one of the the guests uh, during a. It might have been a Tom Snyder show or something like that. I think he was on Johnny Carson. I think he. Yeah, he mentions that. I, I never. I never found that as a as a as a file or anything. It would be interesting to see that. But uh, but yeah, that some of the science fiction writers were getting that. Uh, sort of talk show you can't imagine today can you that a science fiction writer would be on um unless it was george r, r. martin or something on uh, uh oh i don't even know who's on who stephen colbert or something like that. yeah the only example i've ever seen really that i can think of was greg bear was on john stewart once yeah but i can imagine maybe ernest klein might might get that sort of attention once the ready player one movie comes out or something yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, so I, I think I saw Paul was on Johnny Carson because he was talking about cryonics. He met this guy, Bob Ettinger. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, he, uh, Robert Ettinger was evidently one of the uh, early uh, proponents of, of cryogenics, and Paul became kind of a, a spokesman of sorts. 
uh, for that uh, process. What's interesting about it is is he said he, once as he particularly as he got older, he wasn't interested in being frozen cryonically um, like some others had been. He he kind of passed on it. Uh, I th- and I think he said, hey, I lived a great life and, and I can't imagine um, wanting to do any more. Uh, but but that uh, that theme of cryogenics shows up in, in a lot of his works uh, after about the mid 60s. That's a big part of uh, the age of the pussyfoot and um, also his novel, The World at the End of Time. Um, but he actually kind of anticipated it, too, in the, in the novel Preferred Risk. Yeah, there's a thing on his blog where he talks about how this guy, Bob Ettinger, was always trying to get him to <laughs> to sign up. And he was just kind of like, no, I'm, you know, I, I don't think this is going to work. And even if it does, well, no, I, I think he thought that it could work, but and it or it was good for storytelling, at least. But he didn't want to personally do it. Yeah, it's really inter- it's interesting, though, because, yeah, you say that he had become a bit of this minor celebrity and he was meeting all these scientists and just traveling around to labs and getting ideas from them. That Actually, one of his books was inspired by a conversation he had with the mayor of New York City. Um, oh, The Years of the City, uh, which was his uh, Campbell. It won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award in 1985, I believe. It was published in 84. And yeah, according to uh, the, the foreword to that novel, um, he had been at a, a gala or something and, and made contact with the then mayor of uh, New York City and uh, started talking about sort of social planning or, or city, city planning. And uh, that led to The Years of the City, which is, a, is quite a utopian book. Uh, many of Pohl's works have kind of a, even when they're not, specifically a dystopia there's still sort of an angst and sort of a biting satiric dread to them uh but the years of the city is 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 very much a hopeful book right and and we should say i mean he was very interested in politics and public policy types of issues and had very strong feelings about them he wrote a nonfiction book with isaac asimov right about environmental oh yes our angry earth which uh, was um i think it was asimov's last book i mean more Asimov books continued to come out uh, of putting his work together, et cetera. But this was the the last one he actually worked on. And uh, in a lot of ways, uh, it uh, it's an important book because it it lays out a lot of the climate problems and pollution problems that we're now facing, uh, and just just uh, makes them more glaring when uh, considering that Pol and uh, Asimov sort of laid out this warning. Uh, 26 years ago, 1990, I think the book was published. Yeah, and you quote Paul too as saying that that in science fiction, people were talking about these sorts of issues long before Rachel oh, Carson's yeah. Silent Spring came out. Right. And he says, uh, I think it would be very nearly fair to suggest that the environmental movement in America actually began with science fiction. I don't know how how very nearly fair <laughs> do you think that is? <laughs> Well, I think there there were definitely science fiction stories in the in the early 30s that were, you know, sort of exam. You know, they're they're projecting their stories 150 years, 200 years in the future. And granted, not all of them, but there were a few that certainly saw that uh, human beings were going to impact the environment of the entire planet by our use of uh, fossil fuels and just uh, the sheer amount of us, if you will, and. Um, for Pohl, certainly, again, that returns us to the space merchants, which is one of the 
really is one of the great environmental works of, of, of environmental fiction that's ever been written. And uh, I think in a lot of ways what he's, he's suggesting is that um, science fiction was, was looking at these possible futures and, uh, and certainly triggered a lot of the imagination uh, that leads to um, sort of dealing with or coping with these problems. Yeah. Well, why don't you say a little bit about this book? Like, how did it come about? Were you a big Frederick Pohl fan or what was the what was the inspiration for doing this book? Well, uh, the way it came together was that um, I, I saw in Locus magazine uh, a little blurb for this series at the University of Illinois Press, the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series. That was uh, Gary Wolf uh, mentioned the first book in the series about John Brunner that the that the uh, University of Illinois was doing. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, I'm intrigued by that. And as an academic, um, I sent a you know I'm looking for a project, and um, I was certainly already associated with uh, James Gunn, and um, I'd met Paul a couple times, and he had a, he had a good relationship with the folks at the University of Kansas. He had participated in uh, James Gunn's summer programs. Uh, from the mid 1970s up until about 2009, when he couldn't travel anymore, uh, he would come uh, every year and, and participate in the uh, the teaching institute and the writing workshops. Um, so anyway, I, I sent the editor a, a, an email just saying, "Hey, I'm interested in this series. It sounds really, really uh, uh, intriguing. Um, and would you be interested in a book on Frederick Pohl?" Uh, I think I actually pitched three people. I said Frederick Pohl, Jack Williamson, and James Gunn. And the editor wrote me back and said, I'd be interested in a book on Pohl in particular. Uh, why don't you send me a proposal? So I did that and uh, went through the, the process and got it accepted. And then um, actually uh, Jim Gunn sent uh, Fred Pohl an email and said, you know, this uh, – person that I'm involved with. I had taken Jim's uh, summer workshops as well. And he said, Mike Page has got a book contract to write a book on you. And uh, he's a good guy. And, and uh, he'll, he'll write you soon about an interview. So that's kind of how it got off the ground. And then from there, I just sort of systematically read through his uh, bibliography and uh, had the opportunity to interview him, as, as I mentioned, um, in July of 2000. Uh, uh, was it 13, the years of, year of his death, uh, about six weeks before he, he passed away. And since then, I've, I've become uh, quite uh, well acquainted with, with Elizabeth Ann Hall, his, his widow. And um, that's kind of how it came together. Yeah. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about how I had attended this this uh, Center for the Study of Science Fiction yeah. with Jim Gunn yeah. back in 2003. Yeah, was Fred Pohl at that? He was there, yeah. No, he actually... Yeah, he, he came evidently... Until he couldn't come anymore, he came every single year from about 1975 to 2009, except in 1984, because that was the year that he and Betty Hull got married. <laughs> yeah, so that's a pretty good excuse, I guess. Yeah, that, that's one of Jim Gunn's stories is Fred came every year except <laughs> the year he got married. No, I, I really enjoyed meeting him. He had some great stories. The one that sticks in my mind is he was talking about in Gateway, he has the computer uh, therapist named Siegfried yes. von Schrenk. 
And yes. I, it was like his, it was like a barber he met or something had the name Siegfried von Klink. And he uh-huh. said, Oh, that gives me that, that's, that's perfect. I should make it Siegfried von Schrink. And he wrote it. And then he sort of thought about it a little bit. He's like, maybe I should get this guy's permission in case he doesn't, you know, so he doesn't sue me. And so he got permission from the guy to, to do that play on his name. And, and that's where it came from. That uh, stuff like that was so interesting. That's to really hear. interesting too. Um, at, because to me, the Siegfried also is suggestive of Sigmund, yeah, which is sure. obviously the, the therapist as well. So there's kind of a double, a double thing there. Uh, in the, th- I think it's the third book of the series, Hichi Rendezvous. He introduces kind of a, a an Albert Einstein simulacrum too. Uh, so he's got the shrink, but he's he's also got the the, the great physicist that helps him with uh, various problems. It's also a, a an AI. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what was your experience meeting him and interviewing him and stuff like that? Well, when I interviewed him at his home, as I said, he was he was, he was near um, near uh, uh, death. He was within six weeks or so. But he, uh, when he was when he was able to speak with me, uh, he was very cogent and uh, um, and uh, friendly and. Um, delightful in, in, in many regards. Um, during the course of the interview, he, he, he sort of nodded off a couple of times where I spoke with Betty and then we'd wake him up and, and speak a little bit more. But um, uh, it was just, uh, I, I wish I had um, made some of these acquaintances earlier in my life, um, but I'm so glad that, that I was able to make these, this connection um, you know, before, before it was too late. But uh, some of the things he he spoke about, you know, what what was really interesting was how he he I, I heard him once uh, say at a at a conference he said that he was a short term pessimist but a long term optimist, and what he meant by that was he he thought you know that the things that we were doing as a as a species to our planet were problematic, and of course as individuals we we have a sort of a a limited time on earth. Um, but I think he, he meant that he, he believed that human beings would overcome our difficulties and, um, you know, that we will rise to the challenges, if you will, and, and that we're problem solvers. Well, yeah, I mean, cause I, I thought that your interview with him was really interesting, the sort of obstacles notwithstanding. And he did, I thought one thing I thought was really interesting is he talks about how if you were to go back to editing, he would want to edit a, ma- a magazine of 50 science fiction because he thought it was, you know, it, pre- it presented humanity in more of a positive light and inspired people in that way. Right. And, and it, again, that was very fascinating how he said it because he got really, I, I couldn't obviously put that on paper. He got really enthusiastic when he talked about that. Um, and, um, in other words, even though here was a a man that was, was, uh, near the end of his life, he still exuded a a certain degree of, of, of enthusiasm for science fiction, for what he loved. Um, you know, uh, you could almost imagine if he, if he was uh, physically capable of carrying on at that point, he might've very well done that. Uh, and started that uh, uh, retro magazine. <laughs> uh, I mean, because you, you also said something in that interview I thought was really interesting where you're talking about sort of the same thing, but you say that science fiction, you say, has retreated in the public consciousness a bit, that you have these experiences with your students where they don't really get what science fiction is as an enterprise. 
Yeah, I think in an interesting way that it feels like that might have changed in the last couple of years uh, from from that uh, remark. In other words, it does seem like more students, at least, or maybe they're just I'm getting more of a targeted audience. I don't know. Um, but I think a, lo- a lot of uh, young people today experience science fiction all the time, um, but they don't necessarily know it as science fiction. Um, and that's also their daily life. My friend uh, Chris McKetterick down at the University of Kansas, he, he just wrote a foreword uh, for, for the book I, I completed on James Gunn in which he says uh, society is becoming more and more science fictional. And um, so in that respect, uh, uh, younger people are familiar with science fiction, but not necessarily as science fiction. It's just day-to-day life. Yeah, that everything becomes science fiction and so yeah, it just so becomes it invisible. More, yeah, it's, well, that's not science fiction. Science fiction means rocket ships um, for them, maybe, whereas they don't. So the social, maybe the social science fiction of the 50s is kind of the world we live in. <laughs> well, yeah, that's like this uh, Brian Aldous quote you have, right? The real world, the real world has caught up to the space merchants. Advertising does now dominate our lives, yeah, does yeah, indeed he, create precedents, sink causes, promote subtle chains of dependencies. Yeah, and he wrote that in the in the 80s. So uh, uh, Brian Aldous did. So um, and at least in my life experience, it seems like advertising is it is definitely much more ubiquitous even even than it, than it was in the 80s or at least the way that we get it through our because now we're we're wired to our computers so much yeah i mean it's funny that that's a comment from the 80s i didn't realize that but i, I couldn't help when i read it i couldn't help thinking about our current election cycle um i don't know if uh what do you think yeah Fred? one one thing i'm kind of noticing personally is, is even though uh you know i interface with my computer all day long etc I don't actually the, the the advertisement stuff seems to be like I don't even see it anymore. It's there, but it's just you know it's almost like you you block it out. But uh, what what's your idea about the current uh, election and and well, it, it seems that um, it's not not literally advertising, but I don't know. To me, it seems like Donald Trump is sort of the um, has taken the P.T. Barnum school of self-promotion and uh, marketing to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the constant uh, Twitter remarks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that does seem like... It does very much seem like something coming out of a Frederick Bull novel, doesn't it? <laughs> or, or, or even a, um, you know... Yeah, or a Vonnegut. <laughs> yeah, it's just... It, it seems like, it seems like a, a little bit more like a science fictional story. <laughs> Than a re- real election. Yeah, well, I, I interviewed um, Christopher Buckley a while, a, a couple months ago, and he said right. he was getting out of the satire business because he just couldn't compete with this election cycle. Yeah, I think of what was his no- novel of eight or so years ago, The Boomsday, which uh, covered some of this kind of material. His, his work is interesting because it, it's, you know, you wouldn't think of him as a, a science fiction writer in terms of the genre, but certainly he his political satire resonates with, with uh, the science fiction because we, we live in a science fictional world. Well, in particular, Little Green Men, that's how I discovered him. Is that is a newer book by him? No, it's, it's, a, it's one of the older ones, but it's about oh. UFO. It's a fake UFO abduction kind of. Thing. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's right. I, I haven't, he has, 
he did the one about thank you for not smoking too, <laughs> yeah. which I, I haven't read, but students have told me about it in the movie. And, and in fact, I think his, that book comes up when we read the space merchants. Uh, it reminds students about the space, uh, the space merchants reminds them about thank you for smoking or thank you for not smoking. Or, I don't thank you for smoking is the title. Thank yeah. you for smoking. Yeah. yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, what was it like? You said you reread Paul's entire bibliography. Just what was it like going through all those stories and taking another look at them? Well, in, in some cases, I, I was encountering them for the first time. Um, but, you know, many I'd, I'd read. And, and I even went into sort of the, the most obscure things, which were um, – some novels that he ghosted uh, for others that weren't science fiction novels. So I read his, he, he and Cornbluth actually wrote a couple of uh, collaborative uh, nonfiction novels that do have their names on, or I'm, I'm sorry, not nonfiction, uh, mainstream fiction. Uh, but he also wrote uh, a book called Turn the Tigers Loose, uh, which is credited to a Colonel Walt Lasley. It's a Korean war novel. Um so it, it was just it was it was interesting to read through everything sort of systematically and in some cases encountering new stuff. Uh, one of the ones that's credited to Paul is uh, of the non um, science fiction texts is a is a book called The Man of Cold Rages, which uh, was supposedly a collaboration between him and Cornbluth, um, and it's the byline is Jordan Park. Well, the funny thing is, is that was the last one I was going to read. And I could tell within the first 20 pages that this was a Cornbluth book, that Cole wasn't involved at all. And so I didn't, I didn't finish that one. Um, but uh, I read, uh, I'd read two or three books a week uh, over, and it took me about a year to read all of them. Some weeks I might only get through one. Uh, some weeks I read four or five. Uh, he, he's got a big bibliography. Well, right. And you sort of say, I mean, just from reading the synopses that you put forward, it's clear that there are some things that just come up over and over again in his novels. The Some of the themes. Yeah, like the, um, yeah. the, the um, you know, resistance movement against the reigning um, government and stuff like that. Right. That's sort of the, the underground uh, movement. Um, and the funny thing is, is that shows up a lot in James Gunn's work, as it turns out. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's that, that's part of that golden age science fiction era zeitgeist, if you will. If we really think about it, Asimov's Foundation is also about an underground group that's sort of uh, working against the powers that be. Um, but Paul was certainly that that was a big part of his work and, and throughout his work, even, even into the works in the 90s to the 2000s. He was always very, a, very much a political writer. And so even some of his uh, galactic space adventure novels of, of the later period, such as O Pioneer, uh, which I had not read uh, prior to uh, working on the book. And that was one of those later ones that I read because I was kind of trying to read um, sort of systematically uh, by timeline. And I was really struck. Uh, o Pioneer is, is, a, is a fascinating political satire. Um, so he he always did sort of engage with politics and this the idea of the underground movement in a way, though, too, stems from uh, the Futurian days when that group of, of youngsters were uh, sort of saw themselves as as rebels. 
And uh, so I think that floats throughout science fiction of that period. And it might still today um, in, in a lot of ways. Well, you say Paul had been a member of the Communist Party, right? And Yeah, he had, he had played around with that in the 30s, just like a, a lot of intellectual youngsters from, uh, from, new, from the cities. Uh, well, not just the cities. I mean, it was actually surprisingly the, um, the, the most uh, sort of widely read socialist newspaper in the United States uh, in the teens was published in Kansas of all places. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, Paul had, had, had gotten involved. Um, I, and I think, I think I make clear or, or and Paul makes clear in his memoirs and other, other writings that, that he, um, you know, by the time of, of the war, he had moved away from that, but he certainly, um, experimented with it, if you will. Um, I saw something recently, somebody, or no, it was a book I, I got out of the library. And this uh, critic, who was a Marxist critic, was arguing that Asimov was clearly a Marxist. And um, that wasn't quite the case. But <laughs> at least with Paul, we, we know for sure that he, 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 he was involved with that. But he, he went on to become um, involved in democratic politics. He's got a, a, an interesting book he wrote in the early 70s called Practical Politics. Uh, 1972 is is on the cover, but that, or that's when it was published. Was 1972, and um, it's kind of a grassroots political, uh, you know, how to how to do it from the grassroots level. And I, I think it could still speak to a lot of people these days. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting too. He says he might have gotten into trouble with Joe McCarthy because of what he was writing. If Joe McCarthy had been reading any science fiction, which yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems to me that. That given the fact that he had had a communist uh, background, even though, however slight it was in some ways, had, you know, had he been one of the, the writers in the mainstream, uh, he might have gotten that kind of attention. Um, but since uh, the mainstream or, or Joseph McCarthy, et cetera, may not have uh, been able to understand science fiction. If we think of uh, Samuel Delaney's idea about you have to learn how to read it, yeah, uh, that may have protected some of the science fiction writers from that kind of attention. Uh, James Gunn actually wrote a, a story where it's quite uh, blatantly uh, uh, a parody of Joseph McCarthy. But by that time, I think McCarthy might have already fallen in terms of his influence. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when you're reading all these books over all these decades, you must see a lot of the changes that the science fiction field went through in that time period, right? Like you talk about how some of these books, maybe they were written as a trilogy because publishers were insisting on everything that has to be a trilogy right now. Right, right. Well, what, right. Some of the, the, the works, uh, I think you might be referring to the um, the uh, the other end of time and the siege of eternity series. I think that's called the Eschaton trilogy that came out in the late nineties. And um, and I think I say in the book that that it might have been better if that was like two books rather than three. Um, but that might have been sort of the market forces of the time. Um, the Heechi stories are are. The, the gateway stories are, are, you know, there's probably some publisher demand for the sequels. And, and you know, Cole does a, does a fine job of expanding the series, as it were. Um, but uh, as far as, uh, and certainly during the 1950s, he, he 
he um particularly with some of the the books that he did um sort of off the beaten path if you will uh, i think he did a now interestingly enough he never did a novelization of a science fiction movie but he did do a novelization of a uh mainstream movie um which was called edge of the city with uh burt lancaster I guess he was contractor. He was asked if he wanted to do the novelization for Forbidden Planet. He turned it down and he wished he would have. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting because you say that uh, the sequel um, to The Space Merchants, it's called The Merchant's War. Oh, yeah. In the in the 80s. Yeah, that that's one of my uh, least satisfying uh, poll books. Well, because you say that it's uh, an attack on consumer culture, but it comes across as something that the publisher pressured him to write to, to sort well, of a commercial I marketplace. I, I, yeah, it, it just, it felt, it, it, it has some interesting things about the 80s, but it, it did feel, it does feel like it's not quite up to par with some of the other works he was writing during the 80s as well. So, and it, it just, it, I mean, you know, you, not every book is going to be a success. But other others might find that others might like that book better than I do. So I mean, if if that's one of your less favorite ones, what would you say are some of your more favorite ones, or maybe some good ones for people to jump into if they're new to Paul's yeah. work? Well, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, the 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 acknowledged classics are the Space Merchants and Gateway. But I I'd, I'd point to in both periods. Um, I really found uh, the the fourth. Um, collaboration he did with Cornbluth, which is called Wolfbane. That to me, I, I had read it years and years ago uh, when I was still in high school and I didn't like it then. And when I reread it, I actually reread it a couple times and it just blew my mind. So I would highly recommend uh, Wolfbane. It was published originally in 1959. It's just a, a bizarre um book and it's just it, it's just uh, it's just a mind blower um and i'm i would also say from from the period that gateway was written uh man plus was written the year before gateway that's just a fantastic mars novel um that that gets into some really good uh sort of uh, psychology as well uh, but i was really impressed by gem which was published after the year after or actually two years after gateway year after the uh, memoir, the, the way the future was, that um, is a really good uh, political satire uh, on the cold war. And it's set on another planet and he in introduces um, uh, sort of alien species. So it has that kind of world building quality to it too, but it's just a, it's just a really good um, cold war novel. And, uh, and then slightly later than that, in 1985 or 1986, was Black Star Rising, which is another um, just good uh, world building, political satire, uh, funny, uh, bizarre. Uh, I like that one quite a bit. And I'd read his last novel, All the Lives He Led. It was published in 2011. Um, really in in a lot of ways uh, got back to that old satire from the 50s in terms of of tone and 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 bitingness but also um sort of spoke to the contemporary world um the setup is that 
uh, Yellowstone has blown and more or less destroyed the Midwest of the United States. So the United States is now a third world country and people from the United States have to go to other parts of the world to get sort of service jobs. And um, it, it kind of goes from there, but that's, that's a, that's a pretty good book too. Really, really an impressive accomplishment for someone uh, sort of at the end. It's a, it's a good bookend to the rest of his work. I also just want to put in a good word for his short story, Day Million, just one of my favorite short stories. Oh, absolutely. We just, uh, I actually had my students uh, read that today. We're going to discuss it on Wednesday because I lectured today. Um, but yeah, Day Million was written in 1966. Um, and it's, it's a quintessential uh, classic uh, about, really about change, about uh, what science fiction is all about. And um, another story I'll throw out there, too, is the classic The Midas Play, which is in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. And that's that's another uh, of, the, of these great uh, 50s era satires. King, Kingsley Amos called uh, these kind of science fiction satires comic inferno. And uh, Pohl was his primary example in his uh, famous study, New, New Maps of Hell. Uh, let's see. Let, I'll throw a, another one out. That's a much more somber short story that uh, one either the Hugo or Nebula. I can't remember at the moment. Uh, in the in 1986, it was called Fermi and Frost. Uh, that's a great Cold War story too. And uh, if 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 uh, listeners or readers uh, get a hold of Fermi and Frost, you'll be glad that the world didn't end up that way. <laughs> it just it, it was a story basically saying let's not you know it's a very poignant story saying let's not end up in nuclear holocaust and at least for now we haven't ended up that way so so in, in that respect Paul's story you know sort of gave us a a warning that that we heeded in in, in a way yeah, I, I, want, I want to say about Day Million, I first encountered that I, when I was a student at the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop in 1999. Mike Resnick was one of the guests. And he yeah, I think it's, he still, said, it's still used by all kinds of, uh, of people as, as like an, a, a great, so a very short story. It's only about six or seven pages in book form. And uh, it's, I think it's, I think Kids Johnson at, Can at the University of Kansas uh, and Chris McKetterick still use that as sort of an example of Here's what you can do in, you know, 2000 words or whatever it is. Well, that, yeah, that's what Mike Resnick said is, is he said, this is a story written in 66 and no one has ever pushed science fiction any farther than this story goes. It sort of takes it to the limit. Right. And, and, the, and, the, and the thing that's so neat about it is by that time, Paul is, about, you know, geez, yeah, I, I look back at him and I think, well, Paul was old at that point. Well, he's all of 48. I'm older than that. <laughs> But because they had been in it so long, it's like, well, yeah, Paul was an older man. Um, but in, in a lot of ways, he's he wrote that during the new wave era when he wasn't he wouldn't have been considered a new wave writer. He was one of the old guards, so to speak. But yet he kind of wrote the quintessential sort of new wave breakout story in, in certain ways. Yeah, and, and to me, that story is just the apotheosis of what we were talking about earlier of trying to look at humanity from outside humanity, that that's a story where the whole point of it is that people in the future will not look like us or act like us or think like us or be really like us at all, and that that's not a bad thing. That's uh, a Absolutely. This, this Day Million is a quintessential example of the world will be different. People will be different. 
what we might think is strange now will not be strange in the future. And one of the things that really resonates with that story when we use it in class these days is at this particular moment in culture, there's very much a, a, a discourse and a discussion about uh, the fluidity of gender, uh, et cetera. And here Paul's dealing with that in the story. And uh, so it really speaks to um, students uh, in the in 2016 in, in ways that it might, uh, you know, students might have experienced it differently, say, in 1996. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you said that your first Frederick Pohl thing you read was The Cool War, um, which I, I've never read this, but it's, it sounds like something that might also resonate with students and millennials and things, because I gather it's sort of, it's not like a nuclear holocaust, but it's more just like the rents get higher every month and your paycheck goes down every month and this just goes on and on and things just get slow there's never any big catastrophe things just slowly get worse and never stop getting worse and just goes on and on like that yeah yeah what's really so when i first encountered that that book i was a new reader of science fiction uh, in ninth or tenth grade and it just really discovered the genre um through uh, uh, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame uh, collection, and I'd gone to the local uh, thrift store and bought a bunch of science fiction books and uh, was just really getting into it, as as many folks know that experience of just really this, I found my thing I love. And uh, The Cool War at that time was... uh, in paperback and it happened to be a a local grocery store one day i was there with my folks and i bought it because it was science fiction and uh just thought it was it at that time it was the most sophisticated book i had read in term because it was a newer book it it had it was a little bit more frank in terms of sexuality and and uh and it just had this sort of sophisticated uh, feel to it about politics now, funny thing is, is when I reread it for the purposes of this book, it wasn't quite as dynamic as it had been when I had first read it. You know, it wasn't, it's like, oh, um, but then I started thinking about it. And what Paul was really doing in that book was saying, yeah, things, things will just get more complex and more difficult for people just to live their day-to-day lives that maybe we won't have nuclear holocaust. Instead, we'll just have sort of uh, almost a, an espionage experience of, of you know, going to the DMV or trying hmm. to catch a flight and, and all these sort of complexities. I just want to say, in your, this, in your interview with Paul, he's talking about this author I'd never heard of, Max, uh, Mac Reynolds. And he says that this guy had all these ideas, things like basically it sounds like the EU and the guaranteed minimum income that yeah. have actually become real things. And they, they actually trace back to these guys, this guy's science fiction stories. Yeah, evidently, Mac Reynolds was a was a was a socialist, a practicing socialist. And he had all these sort of interesting alternative economic ideas that in some ways have surfaced in, in say Bernie Sanders's campaign. Um, but with Reynolds, he, and, and actually I was, I'm kind of in the middle of trying to read one of his novels called depression or bust. Um, and 
in the interview, as we talked, as I talked with Paul, uh, Reynolds was an idea man. Some of, some of the, the stylistically, he's not the greatest science fiction writer for sure, but he had these interesting ideas. And Paul uh, nurtured a lot of those in uh, Galaxy and If in the '60s. But Reynolds was really prolific at that time, and so he was also one of the most uh, published writers in Campbell uh, in John W. Campbell's Analog at that time. So some of that economic uh, ideas were in both Galaxy and Animal. Even though we think of we think of uh, Campbell, particularly the late Campbell, as kind of this right wing conservative, he was still publishing the socialist stories of Macrinids. Wow, I don't know if you saw that there's going to be a Sci-Fi Channel adaptation of Gateway. If you're looking forward to that, yeah, that's that's it's in the works. I was just at Worldcon. I was with Betty Hall some um, and. Uh, actually uh, took her to visit her nephew that lives in Kansas City. And uh, she, I asked her about Gateway, and she said right now it's kind of, um, you know, kind of in limbo, that there hadn't been uh, any new progress. Uh, so hopefully it will come together, uh, because I think it would be, a, uh, could be an interesting series if they can get it, get it underway. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that because the recent Sci-Fi Channel adaptations like The Expanse and The Magicians, uh, I've really thought were pretty good. So I'd really like to see what they would do with Gateway. Yeah, that's that's what I heard. And as as uh, as Betty has said, that it's 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 been under development, but it hasn't moved forward recently, at least. And some sometimes with uh, with Hollywood production, it they kind of go in peaks and valleys. So hopefully we'll we'll get it. They'll get it going again. Did you hear this story about Fred Pohl and the producers who who wanted to buy the rights to the space merchants? Yeah, evidently that uh, periodically he'd get uh, options on on, on uh, things, but I think that even in the early days uh, there was a there was interest. Is that what you're referring? Well, to? yeah. So he tells this story where he had this really high ranking Hollywood agent representing it, and these producers came and offered seventy five hundred dollars. Uh, for the rights to um, the space merchants. And he's like, oh, should I take it? And his agent says, no, no, we can get way more money. And he this this agent eventually talked them up to $50,000 from $7,500. Um, but Paul said that the producers actually basically started stalking him. And they would just, you know, when he was doing an appearance, they would show up and try to convince him that his agent was asking for too much money and was going to blow the whole deal. <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that, uh, that part of the story. I'd, I'd heard that he got... Uh... Uh, pretty good uh, money for that time. And certainly that's, uh, from what I understand, um, particularly those writers from that era, if they did get some sort of Hollywood option, it was usually significantly more money than they actually got for the original novel. Yeah, I mean, he says in this interview that $50,000 in whatever year that was, was, a, that would, was about 250000 today. Yeah, yeah that's, so. that's a good, that's a good uh, payout. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I imagine he got other options as as time went on. Uh, again, James Gunn has had those through his career too, um, and uh, and they they were a nice little financial hit um, when they got those because oftentimes the novels themselves in the in the nineteen fifties they might only get a, a contract for five hundred dollars. And in fact, the sometimes the story payout was better than the novel payout. Like they'd get more from the magazine than they'd get from the paperback publisher. 
Yeah, it was funny. You know, I, I interviewed an author about Kurt Vonnegut, and that's what she was saying, was that Vonnegut, when he started turned to novels, he wasn't sure he could do it. He couldn't, he couldn't afford to take the economic hit of stopping the short stories to turn to a novel, which is kind of hard to yeah, imagine. Yeah, and then now. what eventually happened, though, of course, in the in the sixties and seventies, then paperbacks and novels became more lucrative. So, but but not a whole lot. I mean, <laughs> uh, but but you know, I I wasn't born in that era, so I don't know what incomes looked like at that time. But uh, but certainly, um, as uh, as uh, James Gunn has said, you know, he he made twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars in in any given year uh, in the mid early fifties, and that that was a decent income for that time it wasn't great but it wasn't uh poor either you know it was a middle class income right well i mean you mentioned that you're working now on a book about james gunn any uh like sneak preview kind of stuff you can give us about that well i just finished it um and sent it to, to the publisher so hopefully they will uh, find it uh, acceptable i think they will um but that's uh i go through his his fiction and his life and uh, he was also in you know, uh, important teacher of science fiction, maybe the greatest uh, science fiction teacher uh, in a lot of ways, uh, and very influential. And he was a scholar. Um, he actually he wrote his master's thesis on science fiction in 1951, 50 and 51. And uh, it, it's, I'm gathering. I I would I would I would venture to guess that it was the first uh, sort of academic. Um, master's thesis written on SF. Uh, and it was actually published in a, in a pulp magazine called dynamic science fiction. Um, but it never was published as a book in the fifties or, or since then for that matter. Um, but it, it would have had a great deal of influence. Uh, and I think it did because I think a lot of, uh, uh readers encountered it in that, uh, in that pulp magazine. Um, but, uh, Jim Gunn's career, in some ways, uh, parallels polls, uh, at least uh, in terms of uh, poll got started a little bit earlier, but they were writing similar type of stuff, but with their own voices in the mid fifties, and were closely associated for the rest of their rest of their days. But I hope that it, uh, I hope the book is some will have a similar reception to the Fred Pohl book in in terms of this is the first study of a very uh, significant uh, science figure in the, in the field of science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And you said, you were telling me, I think it's coming out in the next spring. Yeah. We're, we're, we're hoping that we can um, get it out at this around the same time as the third volume of uh, James Gunn's uh, transcendental trilogy. Uh, the second volume transgalactic came out this last fall or excuse me, last spring. And he, you know, he's 93 years old. And he finished uh, the third novel this this spring as well. Um, and so when when I was sort of finishing up my book, he's he was telling me about some of the things he might write uh, in the future. Now that he's finished Transformation, the third volume, he's saying, "Well, I might uh, I might go ahead and start writing another novel here." So so look look for more perhaps uh, from from James Gunn. And so how about with this Fred Pohl book? Have you gotten any good reviews or any, has it sparked any interesting discussions or anything you've yeah, seen? Yeah, uh, 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 Gary Wolf reviewed it in Locus um, favorably, and it was one of the uh, uh, recommended reading uh, in the nonfiction category from Locus. And I actually made the short list for the Locus Award. 
uh, got beat out by a James uh, a book on James Tiptree Jr.'s letters, which is quite uh, uh, fine. And um, I think uh, some reviews in the in the science fiction uh, academic journals are, will be be out shortly, uh, or within the next uh, six months or so. But um, so far, the Locust one was was the one that uh, that that uh, got the most attention. All right, cool. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I really enjoyed it, and it covers, as you can probably tell from this interview, covers a lot of ground. This is a major, major figure who, as we've said, was involved in every aspect of science fiction. Um, and so, well, thanks. I I I, uh, I hope I conveyed um, within the space I had the uh, the extent of his career. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any other uh, final words or anything else you want to? Just anything else you want to mention? Uh, no, not, not exactly, but uh, I will just say, you know, thanks for contacting me about this. It's really cool <laughs> to be asked to do, uh, an interview on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, um, where, you know, typically it sounds like you interview, re uh, you know, actual fiction writers and, and people from Hollywood, et cetera. So as an academic, this is a real, uh, uh honor to be on this show. No, I really like these really in-depth academic books, and I'm hoping to do more from this um, this series. It's called The Modern Masters of Science Fiction. They have volumes coming out later this year on Alfred Bester and Octavia Butler, so I'm really looking forward to those. Yeah, they, the Butler uh, is by my uh, uh, friend Jerry Canavan, um, and uh, Alfred Bester is a book by uh, Jad Smith. He wrote the first book in the series also on John Brunner. And, uh, yeah, I... I I'll make a plug for the series for for some of your listeners is that even though it's it's a series by an academic press, uh, the, the purpose of the books are are to appeal to a broader audience than just uh, professors in English departments. And I think uh, for the for the entire series is accessible and fascinating because each each um, author is has been asked to sort of. Um, you know, seek out interviews with the writers, uh, among other things, and also sort of uh, dig into some of the byways of their careers. Um, and so th thus far, the ones uh, that, that have come out that I've had the opportunity to read are are, are great. Yeah, if it's like Pokemon Go, you got to collect them all. Yeah, exactly. And they have kind of these cool uniform covers, with, but each one has a slightly different color. So you kind of get a, a color-coordinated set. <laughs> Uh, all right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, we've been speaking with Michael R. Page. This is his book about Frederick Pohl. And uh, it's from the University of Illinois Press. And so, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Michael R. Page for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including DomC1996 and SeanY246. Dom C1996 writes, One of my all-time favorite podcasts. I really enjoy the interviews and discussions on this show. So far, I've gone out and rented The Witch based on the discussion, and I also went out and bought the complete first season of Star Trek The Original Series before I even finished listening to the interview with Adam Nimoy. I love listening to this podcast and highly anticipate it every week. Five stars, easy. So big thanks again to Dom C1996 for that great review. Special thanks as well to Leon Fournier, who just increased her Patreon pledge to $3 per episode. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. 
And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.